0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: My high school was not touted for its athletic prowess. Like it was a it was a blue ribbon school for academic excellence. But I told myself, I was like, look, I'm going to come here and win a a state championship. It took me four years, right? I wanted my senior year, but I had the ultimate belief and I already put it in my mind that I'm going to do that. Tom Brady already put it in his mind. You already picked me. So I'm going to work my, I'm going to work my tail off to make sure I deliver at the end of that. And that's, I, I think that's what, what Tom Brady has. That's what my brother had, like, um and i've seen that all the time like my brother had this amazing amount of just courage in himself courage yeah. to, to to stand out courage to be the best courage to want to be great you know you have to have courage you can't tell me that i'm not going to do anything Shrini, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. Very excited about our conversation today.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, I found out about you because you apparently have been listening to the show and then you told me that you had been a college basketball player that your brother was in the NBA and as a you know, mentioned you know in our multiple attempts to actually get this conversation started, I am one of those weirdos who you know has no athletic ability when it comes to team sports. I've only plays sports video games, but I'm beyond fascinated by athletes. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I wanted to start asking you: What did your parents do for work, and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you made with your life and your career?
1: Yeah, so um I come from two-parent household um and my father was a New York City MTA train operator um that worked the night shift and um my mom was uh she still is um but she was at the time a bank secretary at then named um Immigrant Savings Bank and I think um just having parents who were I feel like they're completely polar opposites um gave me just perspective on um how to navigate in the world like i think i learned from my dad just the importance of hard work and consistency um Mm -hmm. seeing him wake up every day to go to the you know the night shift um i think had a profound impact on me and my work ethic and then i think my mom instilled in me the the importance of being a kind person and being a communicative person
2: Yeah. You, you, you know, emphasize the fact that you grew up in a, a two parent household. and I know, you know, when you and I were speaking earlier, you mentioned that you grew up in, you know, what people consider kind of a rough neighborhood. I mean, why is that so important? Like, uh, and, and, you know, how is it different? I mean, what is the impact of that versus these kids that end up in a one parent household?
1: Right. Well, from my perspective, I think it's just the, the stance on stability um and just having two figureheads in the house who I knew I could rely on um every day you know mm-hmm. um, my dad often uh drove me to to school in the morning um and drove me to practices and stuff like that so having that dependable support system in a sense was uh extremely profound and I think had a great impact on me. And, you know, a lot of people come from sometimes don't have that um, access to support.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I I remember we attempted to do this before. And and one of the things that I'm always curious about, and I've asked a handful of people this with Chris Wilson here and, and, you know, others um, who've grown up in neighborhoods similar to yours. And when I asked Andre Norman, you know, what it is that we don't see when we watch movies like boys in the hood or, you know, John Singleton movies or Spike Lee films that portray life in these neighborhoods. As you said, but none of those movies portray as the trauma that you experience when, for example, you come from a single parent household, but what misperceptions do you think media creates based on the kinds of neighborhoods, the neighborhood that you grew up in? Because in my mind, like, you know, the things I know about these neighborhoods are the central Park five and, you know, the things I've seen on TV.
1: Right, so I think um the media does a great job of dehumanizing um the neighborhoods that um you know are depicted, and um they don't show us they don't show the people that look like me as human beings, you know mm-hmm. um most of the time we're looked at as you know these hyper inflated images of of you know whether that's you know, hypersexualized or you know, just uh it's always a negative portrayal of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um rarely do we see positive influences um in our neighborhoods, you know, a lot of the time uh they and it's put, it's portrayed on, on 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 screens and stuff like that, right? Like a lot of kids emulate the 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 pimps and the 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 drug dealers and stuff like that that those perceptions are always being um, put in front of us, but we don't see the the other stories. You know, maybe the black business owner who's had who's been an entrepreneur for years that's at the store in the community and it's been a community space or something like that. Like these are the stories that are not being highlighted and acknowledged and. um, I think I have a responsibility as just, um, you know, as a as a person who's rised up from these circumstances to kind of like highlight the good that actually happens in our neighborhoods.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, as you were saying that the thing that just kind of struck me immediately is the people who make these films, most of them are all African-American, African-American, you know, people like right. Spike Lee and John Singleton. So why do you think it is that they don't tell the other side of the story, given that they themselves know and probably have experienced exactly what you're talking
1: about? Um, because I think sometimes like you have to kind of like spoon feed people, essentially. Mm. Um, you can't give everybody everything at one time, so it's kind of like we're gonna show you the trauma that exists in these neighborhoods so that you guys don't think that we're actually um <laughs> we're 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 making stuff up, you know like people who are not in it don't really understand it looking from the outside in um yeah. you have to experience it and be in it to actually um you know, to understand what is going on. So um, I think that that is, is, that's my perspective on things, right? But now we're starting to see um, with film and and, uh, creative mediums and stuff like that, people are starting to tell different stories, you know? Like I was just watching something on Netflix the other day um, that was talking about August Wilson, one of the great Black playwrights. And um, he... He made plays that made us human, you know, like it put everyday people in a, in a, in a perspective that, that kind of instilled and showed positive, um, reinforcements of what, um, you know, just positive black people look like, you know, so I'm really in the, the business of religion and high things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I I want to come back to this uh but one of the other things I know you, you had mentioned to me is that you are one girl uh, among three boys and um, right. four siblings. So two questions. One, what did you learn about making sure your voice is heard and what did you learn about navigating human relationships from a big family?
1: Yeah, so um just being heard I had to uh claim my space <laughs> among uh uh just a house full of guys, you know? Um, it, it, I think that just kind of like translated to me, um, developing a tough exterior in a sense. Um, all three of my brothers, they're all bigger than me. (laughs) Um, and, uh, they just, you know, it, it, it teaches you to, to learn how to, um, Separate yourself from the pack, if you want to say. Learn how to be seen. Um, I think because I had my mom also in the household, um, you know, I wasn't lacking in that area, but um lacking a feminine presence, but still just my brothers instilled in me the the will to fight for myself, um, to speak up for myself, um, and understanding how to navigate like social dynamics. Um, I'm the second in the, in the order of siblings. So I had someone to look up to, and then I had two other siblings looking up at me. So that kind of, um, I guess if you want to say, put a sense of responsibility on my shoulders that I had to be a model of, um, and an example to my, to my younger brothers, but, um, it just helped me, like, navigating social dynamics like I feel like for me I've been able to um adapt and I feel like I can adapt and be in any type of like social group. Um, I can mingle and mesh with probably every group that was in in school, you know, the nerdy kids because you know I was a brainiac, I was a nerd, I loved school, um the sports kids because I played ball. Um, the artsy kids because I love movies and theaters and stuff like that. So um, so, yeah, I feel like I'm a well-rounded individual because of that. Yeah.
2: You know, when we see people in positions like your dad's, there's this sort of tendency to be like, oh, that person's just a train operator or something like that. And we put people like Elon Musk on pedestals, but then somebody like your dad probably works just as hard. Right. So with your parents, what was the narrative around making your way in the world and education in your household? Right.
1: Um, my mom and dad uh, were very big on education. Uh, they just always constantly had the mantra. You 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 won't be able to play basketball or do the fun stuff unless your homework is done. Right. <laughs> that was always the case. Um, but my mom was my mom was integral in the fact that she flooded our house with books. Um, I don't know if that was intentionally on my mom's part, but she just made sure we had books and stuff to read. So I think like self-education was a big thing. Um, I had access to, you know, Britannica encyclopedias. I would like sit and just read stuff all day, like all the time. Um, I think myself books, um, has kind of like just led me on to what I'm doing now. Like I'm an avid reader. Like I love reading. And I think that was started because my mom You know, whether it was intentional or unintentional, the fact that she put books and flooded the house with books um, had a profound impact on just me still to this day.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know how this turned out for you and your brother. Uh, You know, I mean, clearly you guys have done well for yourselves. You've made your way in the world. Did you have friends that ended up in less fortunate circumstances that ended up getting in trouble? And, and, you know, what is the difference? Like what is the moment that separates the people like you who realize that you're in a particular environment? Obviously parents played a role, but what are the other factors that lead somebody, you know, to crime versus to, you know, living a life like you live?
1: Yeah. um, I did unfortunately have, uh, you know, a few friends who did not, um, uh, I guess you want to say make it out or they've made some some bad choices that led to some bad consequences. And I think that's because of, again, like I said, the support system, right? Um, a lot of us, you know, navigate in the world most of the time, like we're trying to fit in or find our tribe most of the time. And if we don't get that um if we don't get that that sense of feeling that sense of tribe fulfilled while we're in at home we look for it in external other external places or we outsource it so um sometimes people look for that in you know gangs gangs offer that 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 familial sense of of um family of belonging of um being seen, acknowledgement. So um, I think it really comes down to the selection of people you have in your group. You know, you you have to learn how to um pick and assess the people in your in your in your immediate space. Like a lot of my friends now um, are people I grew up with who, you know, my best friend, she's an IP attorney. You know, she's you know, she she had her goal focused on being a lawyer and she stuck with it and kind of uh, we kind of helped uplift her to get to that place. You know, so I think a very found and strong foundation and support system helps to helps you to navigate and not make the choices that um, you see happen often and learning from other people's mistakes and seeing other people do and get into trouble kind of like steered me away from doing that. Yeah.
2: Uh, What role did your parents play in, you know, kind of the friendships you developed? Because I very distinctly remember when we moved from Texas to California, my mom hated my first group of friends because... My, my first, my friends, in, my, my closest friend in Texas was like the biggest nerd in school, like an absolute genius. And of course, I'm from an Indian family. So what parent doesn't want their kid hanging out with the smartest kid in school, even if he is an asshole, which it turns out he was. But um, the second group ended up being kind of a, a bunch of, you know, misfits. They weren't exactly the brightest bunch. But my parents weren't thrilled, but they just happened to be the first people I met because of band. Um, oh. So w- what role did your parents play in shaping the choices you've made with friendships?
1: Um, I think my parents just kind of always kept it real with me, you know, like especially my mom. Like my mom just always was like, "Make sure that the people around you are doing positive things, who are trying to do something for themselves." And most of the time, I hung, I hung around athletes, like student athletes. And like student athletes are some of the most dynamic and profound people that I know, you know, because we all have this, this, um, this ability to balance and kind of like juggle so many things. Um, So I was always around people who just wanted better for themselves or who were always constantly trying to improve. And I think that kind of like rubbed off, rubbed off on me um my dad always kept a small circle of friends um my mom small circle of friends so i I think i kind of like subconsciously learned from from that like keep a, a good group of people around you to kind of um help you move forward in life
2: yeah well let's talk about the part of the conversation that i've been looking forward to most which is uh basketball um First, let's talk about your brother, I mean, because it sounds like he kind of paved the way for you. And, you know, the thing that I wonder, particularly about somebody who gets to, you know, the NBA is that, you know, you're basically playing a game in which, I mean, the odds to get just to get there alone are so unlikely because I, I still to this day never forgot this documentary I saw it was about um, the NFL draft and they show you know people going to the combine and then they showed draft day and oh. there was a, a kid I remember who basically dedicated his whole life to this one goal he was a nat- he was on a national championship team he was the quarterback and he didn't get drafted mm. and so there are two questions that come to me. I mean I know your brother obviously went to the NBA, played for a year. So, one, I mean, what is it that actually enables that level of accomplishment? Because I can't imagine, the commitment has got to be completely insane. It's got to define your life.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, you're committed your entire life. <laughs> like you said, that is um, the goal for his entire life. Um, it just brings like another kind of soft spot for me it's like we as athletes dedicate so much time to our craft and sport that we never actually um figure out what our lightings are beyond that you know um we have sort of like an identity crisis um after we're done competing but uh, a totally insane amount of commitment you know you have to um, make sure that you're eating correctly, right? Um, proper nutrition when you're become a pro. Um, the intensity of the workouts, the, the just the different types of workouts you're doing. Um, my brother was constantly training, you know, doing pool workouts, um, you know, doing cardio workouts on the track. Um you know you gotta you have to really prepare you have to really commit in order to to get to that to that level you know, and I've seen him do it day in day out from an early age and um it it wasn't a surprise to me when he actually got to the nBA he went undrafted, but he did a he um immediately after the draft he got a call from the Celtics and said that we want you to be a part of our summer league team, so you know it. It all worked out at the end of the day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So this is probably a bizarre question, but how how much of it is talent? How much of it is genetics? And how much of it is hard work?
1: I'm going to say it is literally 10% talent, 90% hard work. Because I've seen it so many times, right? Like the least talented person become and turn into the superstar player. Mm -hmm. um i've i've seen it multiple times and it's like one of my high school trainers his name is jerry powell um he works out of long island he used to tell me he was like hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard that hard work piece is such an integral and profound piece um to the puzzle
2: okay one thing i noticed is you didn't answer the question about genetics because So this is something that I, I, the reason I'm asking about this is like, I'm a scrawny Indian person, but like (laughs) me, like chances are your brother would like mop the floor with me after five minutes, even if we played a game of pickup, even if I went and trained for like, you know, a month even if your brother trained me, he'd probably still beat the shit out of me on a basketball <laughs> court because genetically, I mean, so that, that's why I'm curious genetics. about that. Like I'm not trying to stereotype, but I think that in my mind, I think we're, we might be lying if we say that doesn't play some role in all of this.
1: Yeah. I, um I probably passed over because I didn't realize you said genetics as well, but I think genetics plays a, a, a small part in it. Um, You know, my, like my son he's 3 now he a lot of people say he looks like he's 5 but i'm 5'10 right like i'm 5'10 and then my husband is 6'8 so my son is going to be big
2: <laughs> so he's got you a much know? better shot than i would have ever had at making it right. to, the, to the nba yeah
1: <laughs> right so um i think i do think genetics because like all of my brothers are you know re- relatively uh brawny big built guys, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, so it has a, it has a, I think it, it, it plays a a part, but the hard work is really where it comes into. Like you have to continue to condition the body to make sure that it's appropriate and fit to withstand the amount of pounding and intensity that you're, you're, you're running it through every day, um, competing. So, um, oh yeah. Yeah. So this
2: is a question I asked Brett Lockett, who um, you may have heard my interview with him. He was an NFL player who played at UCLA. And I asked him, I said, so what is it that enables Tom Brady, who goes literally last in the draft to become Tom Brady and the guy who went before him? There's an entire documentary about this on YouTube called The Year of the Quarterback, and they show all six quarterbacks were drafted that year. The first guy was a guy, I think, named Giovanni Carmazzi. He actually played one game for the Niners, and he couldn't cut it. Tom Brady walked up to Bob Kraft on the first day of practice. Keep in mind, he was the fourth string quarterback. And he tells Bob Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, Mr. Kraft, my name is Tom Brady. And Bob Kraft says, yeah, I know who you are. And he says, I'm going to be the best decision you ever made.
1: And again, the support system, Tom Brady, his mother and father were there with him through the entire journey. And he talks about this. He talks about this, about how his dad and his mom were a profound uh, support for him to get to where he needed to be. Like you, like when I, when I went to high school, I told I told myself, I'm going to win a state championship here. My high school was not touted for its athletic prowess. Like it was, a, it was a blue ribbon school for academic excellence. But I told myself, I was like, look, I'm going to come here and win a, a state championship. It took me four years, right? I wanted my senior year. But I had the ultimate belief and I already put it in my mind that I'm going to do that. Tom Brady already put it in his mind. You already picked me. So I'm going to work my I'm going to work my tail off to make sure I deliver at the end of that. And that's what I, I think that's what what Tom Brady has. That's what my brother had. Like um, and I have seen that all the time, like my brother had this amazing amount of just courage in himself courage okay. to, to, to stand out courage to be the best courage to want to be great you know you have to have courage you can't tell me that i'm not gonna do anything you know like i went to a national championship my freshman year i lost but millions of, of student athletes never even get that opportunity mm-hmm. to get there so i'm i'm forever grateful <laughs> yeah
2: well, <laughs> Two things. Let's talk about the actual process of the transition from high school to college um, and the entire recruiting process. But there's one question I realized I, I didn't ask you about your parents. What did they teach you about race and what it means to be black in America?
1: Um, I think my parents just taught me to about my black, like, I really kind of came into my blackness, I think, um, as my, as an, as an adult, um, necessarily, um, my dad would have books around, but he wasn't, like, the, the type to kind of, like, enforce it, um, on you, you know, my dad was very laid back, um, when he wanted to be, (laughs) but, like, he never, they never kind of, like, enforce those things. I think it was my family. I learned my Blackness from my family, like my my paternal grandfather. um, When I was younger, we would um, he would host um, Kwanzaa festivals and Kwanzaa celebrations for the entire family. And just seeing my entire family gathered together and all the time, um, I think just just put that 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 sense of pride in me as a Black um, as a black uh, person and then i think i kind of fell into my um, my blackness when i went to college and had the whole um don Ines, uh fiasco um not sure if you remember um but my freshman year in 2006 2007 i went to a national championship um against tennessee volunteers and don he was a master at the he, he said some egregious things about my team. And that kind of uh he called us uh he called us nappy headed hoes. And um that was my first, like, I think dealing with overt racism, if you wanna say. Um, being an a, a 18, 19 year old. That was my first instance of being like encounter with racism overtly on a national stage. Like this was all over paper, everything. Don almost got fired (laughs) because of this, you know? So um, I learned that we are rich people. We are, uh, you know, just a a resourceful people. And um, my voice matters. I think that's kind of what I'm trying to echo here. Like my parents kind of set up the stage for me to realize that my voice matters and I matter in this society, whether society thinks so or not.
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny because um i think when it comes to race there's you know we all have stereotypes when it comes to race and i i, I may have shared this story on the show before and this is ridiculous like I, I had two black roommates like two of the coolest guys i ever lived with and i remember going to the apartment and i'm like you guys smoke weed right and my friend's like you sound like a racist idiot i was like i'm not asking about that i'm asking because i don't want to live with two people who don't <laughs> like that was the main reason uh, right. they're like yeah of course Ben. but the thing that you know the reason i brought this up is, is that, you know, we have these stereotypes. And I think as an Indian, you know, we're really fortunate that we're stereotyped kind of as a model minority, because it's like, what are we stereotyped as doctors, engineers, now the, you know, CEOs of the biggest tech companies are all Indian. And if you think the guy at the 7-Eleven is, you know, just an Indian guy behind the counter, what you don't know is that that guy owns like 200 of those 7-Elevens. Um, so one thing I wonder about is, how do you start to think about changing stereotypes because I, I even when i was in brazil i had a professor who was you know teaching a class on brazilian culture and he said that you know even in a place like brazil where you know it's like a, a melting pot he said had a friend who's a black guy who's very well off and if he's driving around in a Porsche, the cops will pull him over simply because he's black mm.
1: right 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 um i think it's it comes down to changing how we speak And changing how we we think about these things. Right. And having the conversation like just you bringing up the conversation and sparking um, the topic. Is going to help change the stereotype, you know, Um, I think a lot of the times um, people shy away from uncomfortable conversations and um and that leads us to stagnation or that keeps us in a stagnated place where we're not actually um figuring out solutions to the problems that we're we're facing so for me i think it just comes down to like you know changing how you speak about things and Having conversations with people and not being uh, afraid to have conversation with people about these things, you know? Uh, we have to start talking. Um, we have to start talking about race and racism and, and all these things that are constantly being depicted in order for us to get to a solution in order for us to get to a, a compromise. So yeah, speaking about these things and having the difficult conversations, uh, I think will help enact change around no. the stereotypes.
2: You know, uh we had Sean Dove here. You may have heard the episode we did about what it means to be black in America where we basically, you know, curated a bunch of, of clips from a lot of our African American guests and if you haven't, I think you'd really enjoy it. Um but one of the things that he said to me that really kind of stayed with me, I never forgot. is he said that, you know, I mean, Sean must be close to 50. He was the founder of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And he said that he'd come to terms with the fact that he probably wouldn't see racism end in his lifetime. What do you make of that?
1: Um, I agree with him. Uh, I don't think I'll see it end in my lifetime as well. Um, yeah. It's it's going to take a long time before these oppressive systems are really... Um, uh, are really... uh Infiltrated and kind of like knocked down. Like I know it seems as if that's a you know that's a that's a statement. Like you don't think that we can we can get to that place? Um, I think we may be in the trajectory to get to that place, but it's it's not going to (laughs) end. You know these systems have been refined and and put in place to actually work, and they've been doing. The work, so it's going to take a lot of work to do the reverse of that. Yeah. Well,
2: let's talk specifically about the the process of um, college recruiting, playing college ball. At you know, unfortunately, since we didn't get to use Riverside, I couldn't pull this clip back that I wanted to play. But one of the things that I you know became painfully aware of when I talked to Brett Lockett. Uh, he said that, you know, when you have football players or athletes, people think that athletes are pampered and, you know, they have tutors and they have all this stuff. He said, what you don't see is that at the end of the day, it's still a business generated, you know, designed to do one thing. And I, the, the NCAA apparently makes a fortune off of student athletes. And he said, you'll see that these, you, if you talk to any UCLA football player, they've all almost majored in the same thing because those are the only majors that don't conflict with football practice. And as a result, a lot of them get out um, with no skills that they can put to use in the market. But I want to hear about your experience, particularly as a female, like how does it differ?
1: Um, I'll say, uh, he's actually right in essence, like, um, cause I had a similar situation. So I wanted to, at one point, I wanted to do, um, pharmaceuticals and, um, no, that was my, my, my teammate. She wanted to do pharmaceuticals. So I'll just give you an example. My teammate, she, her name is Maya McCurdy um, Johnson. She's now the assistant coach at Cincinnati, um, the women's basketball team at Cincinnati uh, University. And she wanted to study pharmaceuticals coming into school. Um, we were in the same class. And our, acad- our academic advisor was like, um, sorry, you can't do that. It, <laughs> you know, It pretty much conflicts with everything that we do throughout the season um you know two days at you know when school is out um school now we cannot do that and she was heartbroken like heartbroken i also too wanted to do um i think it was the school of of school of medicine at the point at that point um i could not do it cuz everything conflicted with our traveling schedule all the all the different uh tasks that we had to do and they kind of like push you into something that, you know, most of the time you really don't want to do. But for me, I wasn't going to do anything that I didn't want to do. I just went with another kind of like variation of what it is that I want to do. So I kind of wind up studying biological sciences with a concentration in pre-medical studies. I I don't know how I I figured that out, but (laughs) you figured it out. Like a lot of Student athletes don't have the, um, don't have the foresight to actually do the, 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 the deep work to figure out what it is that they want to do at an early age. You know, we just, okay, this is it. All right. I'll just, I'll just do this just to make sure I could play. You know, there were some instances where I've seen that, but we don't really understand what it is that we like or what subjects we want to get into after we're done competing because like he said we're being pushed into stuff that we really don't care about just because we have to get through you know mm-hmm. um i grew up with so many guys who did not like school but they had to make sure their grades were good in order to compete in school you know like there's that dynamic and um I usually tell, like, student athletes that I talk to or come across a mentor now, like, figure out what your passion is while you're playing as well. Because, like, once you're done playing, you have to figure out how to still get a check. You have to figure out how to still live as a person, you know, like, you know, things may be different. You know, like when you stop playing, like you stop everything. Like that's why a lot of athletes after they're done, they, they get big, they get fat because it's like you're no longer in that world anymore because mm-hmm. everything stops. So yeah. it, it, it's I think it's, a, it's, it's some of the same parallels um, um, on the, the woman's side as well. You just have to be you have to be kind of like you kind of have to, to be a savvy student athlete now. To, hmm. to, to not get run through the rigor or more of just getting through, you know, no. you have to be intentional.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, even as a woman, right. I mean, the pinnacle is probably what the WNBA where it's nowhere near, you know, the kind of salary or potential lifetime, you know, set up with money and fame and all the things that you get as a male athlete in the NBA, both of which probably I'm guessing the odds of making it are, you know, slim to none. Um, right. So, for you, when this thing that has basically defined your life for the better part of probably you know i'm guessing twenty plus years um, how do you begin to rebuild your identity from there when you're basically thinking about, okay, this is it like you said, the game is over now what
5: um,
1: right um, well for me that 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 came with a little bit of depression <laughs> um. You know, um after I was done playing, um, I kinda tried to go back into the medical field, you know, and I kept getting the same response from uh potential employers, like you don't have no experience. Like why would we hire you? You have no experience in a lab, you don't have any experience in, you know, a hospital, you have this this small internship that you did while you were in school, but that's not really anything. Um, So I went through a little, a period of depression, like just trying to figure out who I was um, and what value I brought to the table besides being an athlete, you know, Um, because we forget, (laughs) you forget, you know, you think most of your, your aura and your persona is attached to uh, a sport that you play when, you know, you, you, you don't really get a chance to, to really figure out who you are until after you stop, you stop playing. But one of the things that I see with this new generation of student athletes is that they're doing everything that they love to do. And they play basketball, (laughs) which I learned at a, you know, a a later age, like you could still play basketball and, and be a nerd and love to do this. And you do this, like, I didn't, I didn't know that you could do that when I was coming up, you know, um, I just thought it was just school and sports, like school and sports. I can't, I can't play an instrument. I can't do karate because there were so many other things that I wanted to do, you know, growing up. But I knew if I wanted to be the best at basketball, I had to dedicate endless amount of time and commitment to this one craft. And, um you you try to figure that out and try to translate the athlete mindset to what it is like. I kind of, for me personally, I with my second passion and that was cooking. Um, when I went overseas and played as a professional basketball player, one of the things that I learned was how I love to eat and travel. Like I really love to eat and, and, um, going to farmer's markets and seeing how like the European lifestyle of eating was so much different than the American lifestyle. Like, um, we eat like shit in America. Like it's really bad. And you eat like shit as an athlete, (laughs) like you eat anything because you think that, you know, you can just work it off and it not mean anything, but going overseas kind of helped me figure out my second, um, take, in life and that was cooking. So, um, I kind of like got into, I became a professional cook after, um, I finished playing basketball and, um, that really fulfilled me. Like I didn't want to do anything that, um, I didn't want to do because you hear about corporate America, right? Like we don't make the best transition to like corporate America because, you know, it's usually just people micromanaging you and kind of like not allowing you to grow and develop. Like that is the ultimate hindrance for a student athlete. (laughs) So, um, yeah, just trying to figure out what your passion is beyond the sport is what kind of like helped get me out of the depression and kind of like figure out my path. So like, that's my advice to student athletes now, like figure out what your passion is. Cause if you're chasing money, that's, That's, that's not the thing you're going to be chasing, chasing it forever. So chase your passion and the rest follows.
2: Um, Well, I I want to finish with two final questions. What are the things that you learned from playing basketball at the level that you did that you apply to your life on a daily basis? Like, you know, lessons, habits, you know, discipline, the, the kinds of things that came from being an athlete.
1: Yes, so um discipline has to be one of the biggest that I've learned and applied to all facets of my life. Um you know, as an athlete, um we wake up early to train and we do so many different things to prepare our bodies for competition. So I learned discipline from an early age and it's kind of like carried over into everything else and then um communication the uh, the value of being a great communicator, um, because I played point guard and shooting guard, um, so I had to know everybody's position on the court, and I had to communicate and get everybody to know the plays and to to understand what the objective goal was for the team as a as a captain. So, like being a a, a great communicator and discipline were profound for for me. You know, it's
2: funny if there's any lesson that I learned from playing NBA 2K as much as I do. Uh, when you mentioned you were a point guard, I was thinking to myself, you know what? That's probably why I was a shitty basketball player, because you get a bunch of kids in eighth grade. Every one of them is looking to score, not looking for the opportunity to make a good player, find the next person to pass to. Like that just occurred to me. It's like, wait a minute. Like it's not, you know, how many shots you make. Like I realize like some of the most successful players of all time are the ones with the num- highest number of assists.
1: Right, right. It's it's being the the leader, the general, yeah. um, and directing Ellen. Like I, I get the most joy out of that. Or if it's reverse, if the person is looking for me because I was a shooter. Um, I'm I'm second all time in three point field goals made at Rutgers. So, um, damn. <laughs> I, yeah. So like shooting, I was that was my thing, right? I'm I'm a shooter, and if someone if I was hot. And my point guard got me the ball and I'm shooting three in a row, four in a row, five in a row like that. That to me is the best feeling ever, (laughs) the best feeling ever, just to find the person who's who's hot and get them the ball.
2: Okay, so this is a totally completely irrelevant question to our conversation. Um, I just need to know this. So I kick my older roommates ass at NBA 2K. Is it true that the corner three is the highest um, probability shot of going in out of the three pointers?
1: Yes correct that was that was my favorite spot on the floor training the the corners yes why is that <laughs> um it it, it I, I think it's also the shortest distance you know from okay. the uh as, from the if arc. you want to say from the arc yeah so like i don't know i just really felt comfortable hitting shots in the corner and that was like my 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 sweet spot but but yeah, like hitting that corner shot is, <laughs> is is pretty addictive. Yeah.
2: Well, this has been amazing. Uh, I've just enjoyed talking to you so much and, and learned so much. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is uh, that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: <sighs> Trini, um, I just think per- people being their most authentic selves is what makes what makes you an unmistakable person. You know, like knowing thyself, like knowing who you are, and and kind of like adding value to the places that you visit. You know, um, I've always just had my own mind of, of doing the things. And I, that's what all resonate with people who are their their most authentic selves. And you know, we're living in a time where a lot of people are faking. So, like to see someone who's sure of themselves and knows themselves that um, that makes me happy. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well. Oh, uh- I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and to share your story, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything they're up to?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm on Instagram. People can um, and Twitter um, wellness, Brit. That's uh, three S's and two T's. And uh, I wrote a book for student athletes. So people can find that on Amazon, Groundwork 29, Books, Bowling and Beyond. Or they can go to my website, groundwork29.com. And uh, yeah.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.